Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Greetings to all of you. This weekend, we are starting off our summer series that revolves around the questions Jesus asked in the Gospels. If we were to cover all of the questions, uh, this is going to be a very long summer series. So instead, we're going to focus on some of the important questions this summer. In fact, eight of them. I want to welcome all of us here at Center Street Church, uh, those of us here at Central Campus, as well as those watching from our campus in uh, Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Well, if you've been in church long enough, you heard that Jesus is the answer to everything. Interestingly, Jesus did not present himself as the Bible answer man, but rather you see him as the great questioner. Asking questions was Jesus' most common teaching style. He followed the model of the rabbis. Jesus does not give us a neat list of uh, 10 ways to walk closer with God, but instead he comes up with probing questions. Even when others asked Jesus a question, his usual response was to counter them with a question of his own. The questions Jesus asked have a lot in common with another of his favorite teaching tools, the parables. Both the questions as well as the parables were serving one purpose, to bring reflection. Jesus was not spoon-feeding spiritual truths. He was not pounding people with hard-hitting sermons. He's not offering simplistic pat answers. But rather, we see Jesus uses questions to make people think hard and guide them in the process of discovery. Jesus' ultimate goal was not to supply information, but to bring transformation. So with this intent, he asked a range of questions in the Gospels. And I believe Jesus continues to ask us questions today. Our modern-day evangelical Christianity focuses so much on giving answers to the world. And I'm not discrediting it. It is important that we offer meaningful answers. But we sure can learn from Jesus' method and use the art of questioning in spiritual conversations. For many times, it is not a clever answer, but a well-directed question that will have a lasting impact. For the most part, answers tend to close, but uh, questions create an opening. That's why the word question contains the word quest. It sends you on a journey of discovery. So this summer, we will reflect on some of the crucial questions of Jesus, and it will challenge us to reflect, ponder, and discover the life God desires for all who are part of his kingdom. To start off this series, I've chosen the most important of all questions that Jesus ever asked. And this question revolves around his identity. All other questions hinge on this one question, who is Jesus? Everything else in our life will depend on how we respond to this one question. I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our text for today from uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Lord, as we come to you, we know that we are wrestling with a very important fundamental question. And we know that there's uh, such confusion around this question in the culture that we live in today. So we ask that you will speak to us and reveal to us your true identity. Those of us here who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus will receive a revelation of who you are. I pray for the rest of us who do claim that we have a relationship with Jesus, that we will be even more drawn closer to you as we understand who you are. Let it have a profound impact on how we live our life for you. So we commit this time to you, God. Lead us by your spirit and speak to us in a powerful way. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A book called The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history by astrophysicist Michael Hart, identifies the people who have most influenced history among the billions of human beings who ever lived. This book is written from a secular standpoint. The author states that he's not speaking about the greatest people who ever lived, the noblest or famous or talented. But the criteria that he uses is influence. Whose fingerprint impacted history the most? He's talking about the game changers. You have well-known names like Sigmund Freud, Albert Einstein, Aristotle, Charles Darwin, a list of uh, prominent, well-known history makers. And sure enough, Hart included Jesus Christ in this list terming him as the inspiration for the most influential religion. Jesus was ranked number three. Well, the truth is, you cannot put Jesus on par with other historical figures. He stands unparalleled and beyond comparison. But the point I want to make is, just as Michael Hart had to give Jesus a ranking and wrestle with his influence, each of us has to make a similar choice. Every single person in this universe has to answer the question, how influential is Jesus Christ? Not just in history, but how influential is he in your life? Whether you realize this or not, everything in your life orbits around this question, what you believe about Jesus Christ. It affects your life more than you know. Now, you could say Jesus Christ was a mythological figure who never existed. You could say Jesus Christ was a great teacher. You could say Jesus was a 
prophet sent by God. Whatever your conclusion is, the identity of Jesus is the most central question of your life. So you better think through this carefully. Your response to this question is going to determine how you follow Jesus. How you view Jesus will affect how you live your life. If Jesus was just a prophet, a good moral teacher, you can be inspired by him, but you don't have to follow him with all your heart. He is just one among many. But if Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you need to bring all of your life under his lordship. This half-hearted approach that we are familiar with in our culture will not work. You cannot pick and choose. That's why who is Jesus is the most pressing fundamental question of life. Some time ago, we did a street interview in Calgary and asked a few people who they thought Jesus was. I want you to watch this video. This is quite revealing. If you can play this video now. Do you believe that there is a historical Jesus, a man who walked on the earth? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of hard for us to imagine him in, in this world, but I, I think, yeah, he did walk the world. I've kind of heard both sides of the tale. I've heard some people say, you know what, he didn't actually exist, but I believe that whether he existed or not, the story is pretty compelling. I, I do believe that Jesus walked the earth. Yeah, there probably was. Um, and maybe some of the stories were exaggerated about it. What about Jesus? Was he a, a real person? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, if you if you look at it, um, there's more proof that Jesus existed than Julius Caesar. So, yeah. Yeah. Was he God? I believe so. I'm not sure how, but I think so, yeah. No. No? I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. No more than you or I. No. Uh, I'm sure they were all very religious at the time, so I'm sure if this guy was doing well, then they just thought he was the son of God. The son of God, yeah. So part of it, yeah. Oh, okay. I don't think so. I don't think God would be represented by a human. I don't think God has kids. I don't think he's the kid of anyone. So, um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, no, Jesus was a, um, was a prophet, so, yeah. 2,000 years ago, Jesus himself posed this question about his identity to his disciples. So that is our text for today. Verse 13 of our text opens with these words. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now the location where Jesus is asking this question is pretty significant. It becomes the backdrop for our text. Jesus took his disciples away from familiar territory to 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was a Gentile territory and was considered to be the forbidden city. This area belonged to Herod Philip, and he had renamed this city as Caesarea Philippi in order to honor the Roman emperor and himself. Caesarea Philippi was also a religious center, a place of spiritual diversity. There were remains in this city of uh, the worship of the Syrian god Baal. Also, there was active worship taking place in that city 
of the Greek fertility god Pan. And because this was a fertility cult, all kinds of uh, sexual orgies were associated with it. Along with that was this grand temple in the city dedicated to Emperor Caesar Augustus to demonstrate the supreme power of Rome. So it is in a pagan place where there was a plurality of spiritual beliefs. Jesus raises this question about his own identity. Who do people say that I am? What do their Facebook updates tell about me? Now look at the response of the disciples in verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, like most people today, people during Jesus' time had good things to say about Jesus. And they saw him as a prophetic figure. Some thought John the Baptist, who was beheaded, had come back to life. Some viewed Jesus as a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah. They held him in high esteem, but they woefully fell short of grasping his true identity. As we translate this to our 21st century, no sensible person would ever deny the existence of Jesus. No credible historian would ever question the historicity of Jesus. Now, many people still hold Jesus in high regard, but they fall awfully short of grasping his true identity. One of the proponents of uh, the popular cultural Hollywood view of Jesus is Deepak Chopra, the famous New Age guru. And he wrote a book called The Third Jesus. And Chopra told the media on the launch of this book, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a savior. Not the savior, not the one and only son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. And Chopra went on to say, Jesus spent his brief adult life describing it, teaching it, and passing it on to future generations. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. And just in case you're not familiar with what uh, God consciousness means, in Chopra's view, God consciousness is basically realizing that you are inherently divine. It comes from a Hindu pantheistic philosophy. So in essence, what Deepak Chopra is saying is, Jesus attained enlightenment when he discovered his own divinity, and so could you and I. You know, it is sad that in North America, the most popular section of a bookstore is the one on New Age spirituality. From Oprah to Chopra, we have all kinds of people here distorting the view of who Jesus is in a pluralistic society. So on the day in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus heard from his disciples what was the popular view. But Jesus was more interested in finding out about what his disciples thought who he was. So Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them the same question. Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? The emphasis here is strong on the word you. This is personal. Now I've heard from you about what you think others say that I am. You've been with me now close to two years, seen my miracles, heard my teachings, lived with me. What is your conclusion. How are you going to rank me? Jesus wanted his disciples to verbalize their commitment. Peter functions as the spokesperson for the entire group, 
And he comes up with a crystal clear confession. No beating around the bush. Peter hits a home run. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you read Matthew's gospel, until this point, no individual had directly referred to Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter says here, you are the Christ. Look at the definite article. There is no one else. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All along, the Jews were hoping that there will come a king in the lineage of David who will overthrow all their oppressors and establish God's kingdom. For several prophecies in the Old Testament speak of uh, the establishment of uh, David's throne forever. The Messiah was a royal figure who was seen as the person who destroyed the enemies of Israel. And Peter proclaimed here that Jesus is the king. And where does he do this? In Caesarea Philippi. And that adds to the significance of this confession. Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. Philip was ruling over the area of Galilee. But the true king, the royal Messiah, is not Caesar, it's not Philip, none of these distinguished, renowned figures towering over the landscape. But the real king is this humble carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus. So that is a significant confession in the first century world in light of the reality of their circumstances. The Messiah came not to establish a political rule, but to save people from their sins. Jesus the Messiah was a spiritual deliverer who came not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. So Jesus is the world's savior. Peter also says there that uh, Jesus is the Messiah and the son of the living God. Caesarea Philippi, as I told you, was a place of pagan worship. And you could see statues of Baal and Pan and even Caesar all being worshipped as gods. But Jesus, in complete contrast, is the son of the living God. Once again, it highlights the special relationship between Jesus and God the Father. He is the one and only son. So in a syncretistic place like Caesarea Philippi, Peter highlights the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is the one and only king who deserves praise and worship. Jesus is the one and only son of God who shares a special relationship with God the Father. Now look at Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus commends Peter for this confession. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus applauds Peter's confession. Peter did not arrive at this truth by poring over books or doing a Google search on the internet. But this was a divine revelation. In fact, that's the only way anybody can be saved when God himself removes the blindfold from our eyes and gives us spiritual insights. And Jesus says something remarkable here that has been debated for 2,000 years. 
Some say this is one of the most debated verse in the New Testament. But don't worry, today is your lucky day. We're going to solve the mystery of the ages. Are you with me? Aren't you glad you came to church today? See, haste to come to church in the summer. So cancel all your vacation plans. Do you know that Peter's original name was Simon? Jesus gave Simon the nickname Peter, which actually means a rock. So just so you know, Peter was the original Rocky. Now, I want you to see the play on words here. You are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, what is the rock that Jesus is referring to here on which he will build his church? There are three different interpretations to this text. First of all, there are people who claim that the rock is Peter. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church takes it to an extreme view and base their uh, belief of, in the papacy on this passage, that Peter was appointed here as the first pope. Uh, secondly, there's other groups of people who see the rock as the confession that Peter made, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This truth will be the foundation upon which Jesus will build his church. And there are others who claim that uh, the rock is Jesus himself. He is the foundation upon which the church will be built. Now, you can make a really good case for all three interpretations. So that's why this is such a controversial text. But based on my study, this is what I conclude. And this is my personal view, and I admit it, uh, that I may possibly be wrong. So I am not dogmatic about this. I want to hold it loosely. First of all, we have to realize that we are dealing with metaphors here, and they are intended to make a point. But you cannot stretch a metaphor beyond the purpose for which it is intended. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson points out, metaphors must be interpreted primarily with reference to their immediate context. So when you look at Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is clearly identifying himself as the builder of the church. It is unlikely that he will be the builder as well as the foundation. And we also see that by God's grace, Peter had just made a historic confession of faith in the identity of Jesus. Jesus is building his church on Peter and his confession of faith. You really cannot separate the two. It doesn't make sense. They go together hand in hand. And I believe Peter here is functioning as a founding member, the first to make the confession of faith. So as such, Peter here is a, a representative of all Christian believers. He's a prototype of all who will make a similar confession of faith in who Jesus is. So Jesus is not building his church exclusively on Peter, but on people like Peter who come to believe in Jesus. Now, I want you to look at what uh, Peter himself wrote in his letter, where he's not saying that I'm the only foundation of the church, but instead this is what Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So all believers all through history are living stones and we form a spiritual temple. Jesus, the builder of the church, uses these stones to construct the edifice, starting with Peter. Hopefully, this brings some clarity to this controversial text. But hear me, no matter how we interpret this verse, we have to respectfully disagree with Roman Catholics who see in this verse the establishment of the papacy. There is no hint in this text that Peter is commissioned to be the first pope. Yes, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, meaning he will preach the gospel and open the doors of salvation of the kingdom to people. The reference in our text to binding and losing speaks of the key decisions that Peter will make in consultation with the other apostles on what is forbidden and what is permitted in the church. But the text tells nothing about Peter's infallibility, his exclusive authority, or his leadership being passed on to successors. In fact, if you look at Peter in the book of Acts, he doesn't function like he's on the top of the organizational chart, but he's held accountable by the Jerusalem church. The early church practiced team leadership. So the Roman Catholic view of a single pope figure who's the head of the church and a spiritual successor of the apostle Peter is simply not rooted in the Bible. Now moving away from the controversies, let me make an important application here. Simon Peter had just confessed the identity of Jesus and now Jesus speaks into Simon's true identity. You are not Simon, but you are Peter. You are a rock. Now, that is really astonishing. For on the outside, Peter doesn't look like a rock. He looks more like a marshmallow. Consistently unstable, impulsive, and prone to making mistakes. He goofs up not just once or twice, but over and over again. Even in the very next section of scripture, when Jesus speaks about his impending death, Peter comments that this will never happen to you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, if Jesus is building his church on people like Peter, even the most optimistic person will question its survival. And that is why the promise here is so significant. Look at verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Unstable people turn into rocks, not by self-help techniques or by taking a crash course on improving their self-esteem, but transformation takes place when we confess who Jesus is, when we hold fast to his identity. When we declare that Jesus is Lord, he is King, he is Savior, he is Redeemer, he is God, when we make that confession, something transforms inside of us. We receive a new identity and we start seeing ourselves the way Jesus sees us. (laughs) 
And we are not defined by our sin or our weakness or our failures, but by who Jesus says we are. These are the people Jesus is using to build his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against them. The word used there for Hades literally means death. The life that Jesus has given to his church can never be extinguished. Now, why is this question so significant? Who do you say I am? Because how we respond to this question will determine our identity as a church. If you have a low view of Jesus, when the church falls into the trap of syncretism, liberalism, and starts viewing Jesus as merely a moral teacher or one among many paths to salvation, we forfeit his promise. Jesus is not going to build a church that compromises on his identity. See, when we hear about church decline in Europe and North America, it is not because of Jesus' failure to build his church. It is the church's failure to uphold the identity of Jesus. A church that compromises on the identity of Jesus is not going to survive very long. But when we do hold on to the identity of who Jesus is, the church becomes an invincible force, and all of the forces of darkness will not be able to extinguish the life that is in that church. So this question, who do you say I am, is hugely important to every church. And Jesus is asking us today, Sinistry Church, who do you say I am? And I tell you, we live in Caesarea Philippi, a world that is far from the one true God, worshiping idols turning materialism, power, and sex into their gods. Pluralism, syncretism, and false beliefs are the order of the day. And the question for the North American church is, are we going to be carried away by the cultural view of Jesus, or are we going to hold on to the biblical view of Jesus? Our effectiveness as a church depends on which option we take. Jesus is building a group of people who know who he is and they unashamedly confess the identity of Jesus. It is through all of us who make that kind of confession, Jesus advances his mission and builds his church. Individual churches may come and go, but the universal church representing the faithful people of God will remain until Jesus returns. And that is why I don't care about what the opinion polls say about church decline, what the statistics seem to be saying about our future. I don't fret about the negative perceptions of our culture about the church. The church cannot and will not falter because the builder is much stronger than all the oppositions put together. And as long as we maintain our confession on who he is and not compromise on that, Jesus will do the work of building his church. That's his promise to us. Now the question, who do you say I am, 
is also directed at individuals. Like he did with his disciples, Jesus individually puts this question forward to every single one of us here. Who do you say I am? It's not just a knowledge question. It is an allegiance question. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, who are you giving your allegiance to? Your life and your eternity depends on it. And I pray that even this summer, you will take the time to ponder, reflect, and come to a clear conclusion about who Jesus is. It's a pressing question you cannot ignore. Don't just go with popular opinions, but discover the truth for yourself. Speak to me or one of the pastors here in our church. Speak to your campus pastor. Or if you're watching this online, send us an email, and we will be happy to guide you in this process of discovery. The question, who do you say I am, is not just directed at non-Christians, but this is a highly relevant question to every single believer. This is not just a question you answer once in your lifetime, put a check mark, and carry on. This is an everyday question. This is a discipleship question. If Jesus is who he says he is, then it ought to change the way we live our life. It'll change the way you spend your money. It is going to influence how you spend your time. It will rearrange all of your priorities. It will affect how you go about with your dating, who you marry, how you treat your spouse, and how you raise your family. It's going to mess with the way you talk. It's going to change who you hang out with. It will transform what you watch on the computer or on the television. It's going to define how you cope with the problem of pain and suffering. Who do you say I am? Your response to this question will determine how you follow Jesus. If you have something in your life that is explicitly outside of the will of Jesus, then you don't have the right understanding of who Jesus is. You don't comprehend his lordship. Pastor Tim Keller compares the lordship of Christ to a life quake. Just like when a huge truck goes over a tiny little bridge and the bridge quakes, in the same way when Jesus comes into a person's life, a life quake takes place. You can feel the reverberation. As a result, everything is reordered. Now, if Jesus was just a guru or a good moral teacher or merely a prophet, then he doesn't have full claim over your life. He doesn't have the right to rearrange your priorities. His influence in your life will be limited. You can follow him and still be entitled to some control over your life. But if you believe that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, then you cannot limit his rights over your life. In all aspects of your life, Jesus demands supremacy. You have no option but to give him full control. So I'm going to ask you to pause for a moment and reflect on this very moment. Have you fully surrendered all aspects and all areas of your life to Jesus Christ? Or are you holding on to your rights 
in some areas. Who do you say I am? How you respond to that question will determine how you will follow Jesus. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now as we come to a close. Jesus brought a personal question to his disciples. And this is a personal question he brings to every single one of you here. Who do you say I am? And this is an opportunity for you to actually respond to Jesus. In the quietness of this moment in your own heart, let him know who he is to you. He hears everything that we say here in this place. He has individual attention with all of you here. So who do you say Jesus is? If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't committed your life to him, it's a challenge that he brings to you as well today. I want to encourage you not to leave this place without having a conversation with somebody about this. We have prayer partners after the service available here. I'll be available here. And we will be more than happy to talk to you and guide you in this journey of discovery. So let's maintain a moment of silence. And after that, I'll close this in prayer. Lord, we join with Peter, the Apostle Peter, today to make the same confession that you, Lord Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That you are the only one who is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, and our worship. You are our healer, our deliverer, our provider, our sustainer. You are the faithful and unchanging one. We confess, Lord Jesus, that there is no one like you. And we pray as we believe this to our heart and hold on to this confession, that it will change the way how we live our life, that all aspects of our life will be brought under the beautiful lordship of Jesus, that our lives will align with the plans and the purposes that you have for us. For it is in doing that we find joy and fulfillment in the Christian life. God, we pray for our church living in a syncretistic world. We pray that we as a church will not compromise on the identity of who you are, that we will continue to proclaim and confess the true identity of Jesus, no matter what oppositions we face, even in the future that through our confession, through our faithfulness, we pray, O oh God, that you will build your church, advance your kingdom here in Calgary and all around the world. We want to see Jesus being magnified, adored, worshipped, that people in our city will come to know who he is. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of our Heavenly Father, and the unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.